0: Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Just in case you weren't with us last Sunday, uh, we travel through books of the Bible here at Calvary 316, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Last week, we were continuing our way through the gospel of Mark in a series called actions speak louder, and really the Gospel of Mark, just to refresh your memory, it's rapid fire. It's more about the activities of Jesus than it is really about the words of Jesus, which I like when it comes to our culture, because we have a lot of people tell us a lot of different things, and we've kind of come to the conclusion that it's very hard to trust anyone, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I kind of am more interested in what you have to do than what you have to say. Lance Armstrong, this week, after years and years and years of telling us that he didn't take PEDs, that he didn't dope up, that he won his seven Tour de France uh, jerseys clean, announced to Oprah that he had lied. Talk is cheap. Manti Teow, for the last four or five months, has promoted a story telling us that He had a girlfriend that never existed. And this girlfriend died. Leukemia, had a disease, car accident. It's all a sham. Talk. Talk is cheap. We have politicians tell us all kinds of things, right? Make all kinds of promises only to come to power and what? Reneg. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus also said a lot of things, didn't he? Made a lot of promises. But there's the thing about Jesus and why I love the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus backed it up with action, with deeds. So it's not just hearing what Jesus has to say, but it's watching him. It's seeing what he did and seeing that through his actions, he validated his promises so that we can trust his word because we can trust what he did. Now, Jesus, as we've been traveling through Mark 6, He's entered the last period of his ministry, the third period, known as a period of opposition. Great crowds are coming out, flocking to hear Jesus speak. It's a wonderful, sweet time of ministry, but a plot has been hatched. You see, the political leaders, the religious leaders have joined forces, and they're wanting to do Jesus in. The only thing keeping them from this particular task Is Jesus' popularity. Over Jesus' last year of ministry, his popularity amongst the crowd, amongst the mob, amongst the multitude, would begin to dissipate, beginning there in Nazareth, the first six verses of chapter 6, but continuing really up until Jesus is standing there in front of the mob, alongside of Pontius Pilate, and the same group of people that a week earlier were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, will be crying out for Jesus to be crucified. The plot demanded the public opinion of Jesus be swayed. Now, knowing and sensing that his time was near, the rabbi, the teacher, he's got these 12 men that are not just disciples, but he's going to hand over the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, to these 12 men. And they've sat at his feet. They've learned through instruction. But it's time for the classroom to morph, well, kind of into the the mechanic shop. It's time for them to take some of the things that Jesus has been speaking to them and teaching them, and now it's time for them to apply these things in practical ministry experiences. Most of Jesus' interactions with the apostles will come through trial and error, through sending them out, allowing them to engage in ministry, them coming back, reporting uh, the great things the Lord did, maybe the things that they struggled with, getting instructions from the rabbi. Their job is to do what Jesus did, And Jesus would ultimately ascend to heaven, leaving them with the charge to do what? To go into the world and represent him. So we see in the second part of chapter 6 that Jesus sent out the, the apostles. Sent them out with power, kingly power, to represent him and to engage in ministry. To preach. A message of repentance. Now we're told here that really between verses 29 and 30, a few unwritten things occur. First, the apostles are out doing ministry, going from town to town, teaching, instructing, ministering, healing, casting out demons in Jesus' name. While that's happening, John the Baptist, as we saw last week, is ultimately executed. John had a unique ministry, was in some ways the first disciple of Christ. He was the forerunner who went out to prepare the way for the king, also teaching, interestingly enough, a message of repentance, the same message that Jesus instructed his disciples to go out into the surrounding towns, carrying with them. John spoke out against Herod and his illegal marriage to Herodias, one that was illegal in the sense that he had divorced his present wife to marry Herodias, but one that was immoral in the sense that Herodias first was his niece, but also had been married to his brother Philip. It was a scandal, a first century scandal. And John, a prophet, a man of God, called Herod and Herodias to repent. He called them on the carpet. Now this didn't sit well, obviously, with Herod or Herodias. And John ultimately met his end. I want to make a point, though, that we see here with John's ministry, I think something that we should take to heart as a church. John spoke out, He called to account public officials for their moral behavior. You know, within the church today, there is kind of a movement that we should stay out of political affairs, that we should keep quiet when it comes to moral issues that we see within our culture. Well, not so with John. John found it as part of his ministry as a disciple to, when it was appropriate, to call to account Public officials for their moral behavior. And as the church today, we should not be afraid to speak when we see immorality and immoral forces taking root within our culture. Now, we should understand what's the way in which we change our culture. Well, it's not through legislation, it's through transformation of the heart. Never in the history of the planet have we been able to change people's behavior through law. It's through a work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming the heart of the people. And then that transforms society. Every great movement of morality within an empire or a culture always begins with a revival of the heart. Study history. You'll see this to be the case. What our culture needs, a culture in decline, is not more rules. It's not more law. It's not more abandonment of rules and laws. What we really need is we need a revival brought about by the teaching of God's word and the moving of the Holy Spirit to see hearts transform. And guess what? When hearts are transformed, we have no need for law. We have the law of love, a law written on our hearts. John, he spoke out when he saw, well, problems. But understand, it didn't work out well for John. It didn't work out well. Persecution always comes. When we see a working of the Lord, when we call people to account, we'll always see one of two responses. Repentance or animosity and persecution. Herod had this sense about him that he wasn't going to do anything against Herod, but Herodias hated John and ultimately called for his execution. So all this stuff is happening. The disciples are returning to Jesus. They're sharing their experiences, the work that that the Lord was able to do through them, through the power of the Holy Spirit, asking questions. It's a glorious time. Jesus has gotten news that John has died, which was not so glorious. I'm sure Jesus was the one that broke the news to his disciples, many of whom had been disciples of John. It's a heavy moment. So the scene here, what we should take away from verse 30, kind of the the unwritten elements of what, we're, of what we're witnessing, is that you have a group of disciples kind of weary from doing good ministry. It's a good kind of weary. They've worked hard. They've experienced some triumph, some victory, but they've engaged in, a, in an activity they're not used to. So they're tired. They return to Jesus. They're, they're wore out. They're fatigued. Jesus is, well, he's bummed. His cousin, John, has been executed. So there's some fatigue, there's a tiredness, to the point that we see with verse 31 that Jesus decides that it would be important for he and the 12 to kind of get away. They need to catch up, but they need to spend some time by themselves. Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Because there were many, that were coming and going to the point they didn't even have time to eat because of their hectic schedule, because of the constant ministry needs that were never ending. Jesus decides that they need a little R&R, but to engage in a little R&R, they'd need to get away. I want to make a side point here that really won't have much to do with the essence of our study this morning, but is a point that should be made nonetheless. It is not a sin to take a break. It's not a sin to take a vacation, to get away. If you've been engaged in children's ministry or nursery ministry, or you've been on the worship team, or you've been doing good, out serving the Lord in some other capacity, and you come and there's just a natural, it's a good weariness, it's a good fatigue, it's okay to relax, re-energize, and refuel. It's okay to take a break. It's not a sin to relax. Sometimes I think in Christian circles, we get this, this idea that somehow to rest and to relax, to maybe take a break from practical ministry, to maybe just attend church with our spouse, to be able just to come and sit at the feet of Jesus, that somehow that we're weak, or it's an indicator that we're not spiritually strong. Not so. Jesus, Jesus thought it prudent. Jesus thought it it, it a good thing to take time with the disciples to rest and relax. This was Jesus's suggestion. Now, sometimes we're engaged in church ministry, and instead of taking a break, we push through, we power on. And let me ask, is that ever healthy? If you've ever been in that dynamic or that situation, have you ever exited the other side in a better spot? No. Most of the time you're burnout and you just abandon church for a few months altogether. Or you're like, I've got to leave this church and go find another one because when I go, there's just this pressure that I've got to be doing something. Not so. It's okay to take a break. I love the. Old King James version of this. Sometimes you read the Old King James and you just get some nuances that you might miss in the New King James or the ESV or or the NIV. This phrase that we see in the New King James, to come aside, Jesus saying, come aside is, is translated in the Old King James as come ye apart. I don't know about you, but I found that sometimes if I need to take a break, Like if I need to re-energize and to become refreshed, if I'm reaching that point of exhaustion, that I can't do it at home. Have you ever experienced that? Like for me, I need to get away. I got to leave my laptop at home. I've got to turn off the cell phone. I've got to find a beach with a chair and a book. And I've got to kind of depart from everything or what happens, I might say I'm going to take a week off, but if I take that week off at home, I'm busy around the house, the cares of the world, I can never re-energize. See, Jesus said it's, it's not only a good thing for us to relax, but it's also a good thing to get away. I heard it said, come ye apart, lest ye fall apart. And I think that's prudent for us. So they departed to a deserted place, and a boat by themselves, but the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew Jesus. They recognized the boat, and they ran on foot from all of these cities. And we're told that they arrived to this deserted place. They came together as Jesus was arriving. Now, understand the scene of activity. Jesus, the disciples, they reach the conclusion, we got to go, we got to get some R&R, we've got to get to a deserted place, we've got to get away from everyone. There's, it's impossible for us to relax here in Capernaum. Let's get in the boat, let's go. And as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, the multitudes, the people from the surrounding cities are looking out and they see the boat, they know it's Jesus, they know it's the disciples, they're thinking, where is he going Let's find out. And so the scene here is that people are flocking from the cities out to this deserted place. They arrive before Jesus and the disciples arrive. Now, this is not unrealistic. In addition to the Sea of Galilee, as we've mentioned before, not being very big, 14 miles in length, seven miles wide, very easy to see across the Sea of Galilee, but it was positioned 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains. So it's very easy to just kind of climb up the hill and see what's happening out on the Sea of Galilee. It's very easy to track a boat as it leaves from one place and makes its way across to the other destination. So people are able to see, they identify the boat, they flock out. We're told that they arrived before them. Once again, the old King James tells us that they outwent him. The idea is that the people outran the boat. So as Jesus and the disciples are about to dock, they look up hoping to see a deserted place and there's a multitude. The people have arrived before them and they've come together. Now I can see some of the frustration of the disciples, right? They've just been ministering for the Lord. Jesus has just okayed a little vacation. They get to the other side and there's people there. Like this is the very thing that they left. This is why they were getting away. And inevitably when there's people, there'll be ministry. There won't be vacation. They're bummed out. It's like I could see, you know, Peter jumping out of the boat with his rubber duckies on each arm. He's got his, his beach chair. He's got the little cooler and he's like, son of a gun. There's people. There's people. Now, though the disciples are inevitably frustrated, and you can sense this, you can understand it, nothing happens by accident when it comes to Jesus, right? We know that. So Jesus has okayed a little rest and relaxation, but Jesus knows that when they get to the other side, instead of rest and relaxation, they're going to see continued ministry. Now, this is not by accident. Jesus here is going to use the opportunity to further the disciples' training. They're in a period of ministry training. We're going to see this continued. I love Proverbs 16, verse 9. You might want to jot it down. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Sometimes you just got to go with the flow and trust that the Lord's in control. Verse 34 in Jesus, when he came out, presumably, Of the boat. So Jesus comes out of the boat. He sees this multitude on the shore awaiting his arrival. And we're told that he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Jesus was moved with compassion. This phrase, was moved with compassion, is actually just one Greek word. Meaning to be moved in one's bowels. thats kind of an interesting word, right? To be moved in one's bowels. It's kind of the same experience when you've gotten up, gotten out of the shower, you've gotten that warm-up cup of coffee. You know what I mean? Because you're finishing that warm-up cup of coffee and what begins to happen? I was moved with compassion. I feel it. <laughs> within my bowels. That's what it literally means, to be stirred. Now, the reason that we find this Greek phrase indicating this particular emotional experience is that it was within the cultural mind that what sat within the bowels of a person was love and pity. You know, we use phrases like, my heart went out for someone, right? And we're referencing you know, a physical ache in the sense of like my heart, I was grieved. I felt it, my heart. Now, does the heart actually trigger any? No, but to be moved in one's bowels, they thought that the bowels was the seat of love and pity. And so Jesus being moved in his bowels, he's being moved with compassion. He's being moved with love. I love this definition of compassion. Compassion is experiencing someone else's pain in your heart. And ultimately, the only way that you can be moved with compassion is for you to have experienced hurt, right? The only way that you can identify with someone else's pain is for you to have experienced the same kind of pain. Often, we experience situations in our lives, tough situations, tough experiences, so that when we see someone else going through them, we can have a genuine compassion. Not an artificial, intellectual, like, yes, I know what you're going through, but I don't know, right? Sometimes the the best men that can mentor a young man whose parents are going through a divorce is a man who's himself maybe been the child of a divorce. Why? Because he knows. He experiences it. Someone that's been cheated on When they see a friend that experiences something very similar, they're enabled to be able to to be moved in a very real and genuine way. Hey, your experiences, do you know that the Lord wants to use those for good? Not just for those sores to fester, but for the Lord to heal them and then enable you to minister to others who have gone through the same thing. Embrace painful experience, but then look for other people enduring those things and experiencing those things because you've been equipped by God to be a comforter. So Jesus, he looks out and he's moved with compassion. He sees the multitude. And really, you have to ask yourself, what was it that moved Jesus with compassion? And it could have been a lot of things, really. And a hypothetical, Jesus could have exited the boat. He could have looked out at this multitude and he could have been moved because of the political persecution that this mob was presently experiencing. Don't forget that the Jews, that the Jews were a subjugated people. They had been conquered. They were under uh, the boot of Roman domination. They didn't have a say in the political system They they felt as though that their wishes weren't heard. Political opposition, political persecution. Jesus could have looked out and seen a group of people that were afflicted. He could have also been moved by the social injustice of the multitude that day. Because this multitude, this crowd, they were practically experiencing some atrocities. They were experiencing racial prejudice. Because they were Jews, hated by not only their neighboring countries, but, but hated by the Roman occupation. Jesus could have looked out and seen the women in the crowd. And he could have been moved because of the lack of women's rights, their lack of freedom, that it was not uncommon for women to be bought and sold to be property. Jesus could have looked out and seen the children and seen the lack of health care, the child labor abuses. Jesus could have looked out and seen real moral issues, sex trafficking, prostitution, real issues of the day, and he could have been moved with compassion for these people. Jesus could have looked out and been moved by the economic inequality, the fact that in that society, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, Low wages, class warfare, high unemployment, taxation, all of these things Jesus could have been moved by. But we're told that these things didn't move Jesus. We're told that Jesus looked out unto the multitude and he was moved by their greatest need. We're told that they were like sheep not having a shepherd. It could have been political persecution or social injustice or economic inequality that stirred Jesus. But what stirred him was their greatest need, that they were lost. This picture, sheep not having a shepherd. It gives kind of the idea that the multitude was lost and helpless and destined for a tragic end. You see, sheep without a shepherd. Sheep are stupid animals. They don't lack a lot of intelligence. Their shelf life is not very long without a shepherd. They've been known to just run over hills or run off of cliffs or run right into the trap of, of wolves. They lack protection. They lack security. A sheep without a shepherd is someone lost, wandering aimlessly without direction, without guidance, without protection, without purpose destined for a tragic end. And this is what Jesus saw when he looked out among the multitudes. The deepest need of man is not that his economic situation becomes more equal or socially things work out better or politically things become peaceful. I mean, the greatest need of man is his longing for truth. That we are sheep without a shepherd. You know, if we want to solve the greatest issues of our day, it's not to say that we can't have platforms and initiatives and programs that aim at other worthwhile causes, they're all noble. But if we really want to make a difference, the church should emphasize first and foremost the preaching of the gospel that Jesus came to save men from sin and death. We're told that Jesus looked out on the multitudes and he he was moved with compassion. Compassion on what? Compassion that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what was Jesus' solution? What was Jesus' remedy for the problem, the greatest problem, the pressing problem? We're told that he taught them many things. Jesus' compassion moved him to action, but it moved him not to a cause, It moved him to the truth, that Jesus communicated the truth. So what if our main emphasis as a a church is eradicating the AIDS epidemic in Africa only to see people die of natural good old age and go to hell? Why should the church focus so much of its energy on feeding the poor food only to see them with a full belly and die and go to hell. It's not to say that we can't have causes and initiatives, but we should always identify the main problem, and that's that people are lost in need of a Savior, and then give them a meal, or give them some medicine in the name of Jesus. So when the day was now far spent, Jesus teaching, communicating, we're told that his disciples came to him, and said, Jesus, this is a deserted place. The hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country to the villages and buy themselves bread. For they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, you'll give them something to eat. Now the problem, the problem is obvious. They spent the day in a deserted place teaching the people engaged in ministry. It's been a sweet day, sweet afternoon. The people are now hungry. It's dinner time. And there's no local Mickey D's. Willie hasn't pulled up his pickup truck with his slow smoker out there. The people don't have that to be able to eat. So the disciples are like, it's deserted. There's a great distance. People are hungry. They might have planned for lunch, but they didn't plan for dinner. It's been kind of a long service, Jesus. We weren't planning on a dual potluck today. So send them home. They can eat. That's their solution. The problem, it's dinner time, they're hungry. The disciple's solution, it's time to kind of wrap this up. Send them away. Not to mention maybe some selfish motivation of, and then maybe at least we can have the evening to ourselves. But Jesus' solution to the, the problem, Jesus' plan. What was it? He turned to him and he's like, give them something to eat if they're hungry. Instead of sending them away, why don't you just feed them? That was Jesus' solution. Which leads us to our first observation this morning, because we're gonna talk about works of faith. Works of faith always begin with improbable commands. Jesus, this is a teaching situation, right? Jesus, there's a point behind the entire day's affair. He's gonna teach them about faith. He's gonna teach them about a work of faith And it begins with giving them an improbable command to a very real problem. It's dinner. People are hungry. We say, send them away. Jesus tells them what? Will you feed them? Feed them. Now, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there's probably, we're told at the the end of this section, that there were 5,000 people present, 5,000 men which indicates that if you add women and children, the number could have easily been somewhere between 15 and 20,000. This is a mob. So Jesus telling the 12, feed them with not a lot of time. The logistics are a nightmare, right? So he gives them an improbable command, something that stretches them. Well, what happens? They get together and they decide that they're going to come up with a solution to what Jesus has commanded. Now, there's a side point here. Do you understand that needs, in in a general sense, are often best met by the person who recognizes them or the person that notices them? The disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, listen, we got a problem here. People are getting hungry. We should send them away. We we, we, we should do something here, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Don't fix it. Like, feed them. You know, in ministry, so often the person who recognizes a need is the very person that the Holy Spirit has been stirring to also be the solution to the need. I can't tell you how often in ministry that someone comes up and is like, Zach, we've got a problem. Do you realize that this is falling through the cracks, that that we we should organize, that we should get some volunteers You should really do something about this, Zach, because, I mean, there's a whole ministry that we should be engaged in that's not happening. I'm gonna go ahead and let you know what my response is gonna be. Wow, seems like the Lord's really impressed on your heart that we've got a problem. And you know what? I think you're probably the solution. So why don't you do something about it? You see, sometimes people come to the church leadership like, we've got a problem. You should fix it. Wait a second. The Lord hasn't been like speaking to me about it. The Lord's been speaking to you, which means that the problem might exist, but guess what? The Lord not only revealed the problem, but he appointed the solution. That's the Lord running the church. That's Jesus being the pastor. Don't mean to be crass, but I like to call this Christian circles, in a ministry sense, the whoever smelt it, dealt it principle. Whoever smelt it, dealt it. Whoever comes up and says, we should do something about this, often is the very person that should do something about it. Well, they said to Jesus, we shall go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat. Now, Jesus, this work of faith, it begins with an improbable command. But my second observation is that a work of faith will defy practical wisdom. We're told that they said, the phrase here, and often when we kind of dive into scripture like this, we read it too fast. We lose the scene, the activity, how things happen. Jesus, we got a problem. Jesus is like, we'll solve the problem. So what happens? I can see the disciples like, okay, And they go back and they kind of rally the troops. All right, there's a problem. People are hungry. We need to feed them. Jesus has said that this is our job. We need to feed them. So what's the plan? So they get together. And basically what happens is they have a a uniform response. Well, this is what our solution. You, You told us to feed them. This is our solution. This is how we'll go about doing it. The disciples basically kind of have a group think to figure out the best strategy, the best Logical plan of attack. It's been said, a committee is a group who individually can do nothing, but collectively get nothing done. They form a committee. I mean, that's really what happens. we got a problem. We've addressed this. We've been given the charge of finding a solution. They get together. They have a group think. They form a committee, and this is their presentation. So they said to Jesus, their response shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Most pastors, as a matter of fact, really all of them, and, and by all means, check me out if you can prove me wrong or give me another angle that I, I didn't consider, I'll accept that. But almost universally, we read their response here as being a lack of faith. Like we kind of, I think, maybe even read into to some sarcasm. That they're like, Jesus, I mean, what do you want us to do? Go out. It would cost us 200 denarii, which is the equivalent of about a year's wage. So it's a good chunk of change. And so people say, well, this was not an actual presentation. This was not a solution. That this revealed a lack of faith. The problem is that I don't think so. I've studied their response here from about as many different angles as I possibly can, going back into the original language, and I don't find anything here that indicates a lack of faith or even sarcasm. The flow of events. Jesus, we've got a problem. Jesus' response, solve it. So they take it seriously, they get together, and they present a plan. And their plan is that we should go and buy enough bread to feed the people. This is what it's going to cost. It's a year's wage. This phrase, shall we go and buy, it's, it's not a question really. And the original language is we can go and buy. Now don't forget, and this is one of the aspects of Jesus's ministry that's not often discussed. Do You realize they had a piggy bank? Now that's by no means to say that they were wealthy, but that they actually had some funds on hand. To the point that Judas' job, that he was charged as the treasurer of the Jesus ministry? Could it be, and this is just a thought, that when they come to Jesus, that they're saying, like, we can go do this. Like, we have enough money and savings. We've pulled up enough resources. We could go. We could buy enough bre- There's a lot of bread. But we could do this. You see, to me, it's not a lack of faith that's being demonstrated here. I don't think that they had a lack of faith. I think their problem, and I think what their response here reveals, is that they were looking at a human problem only through human perspective. I, th- I think their problem is that they were looking at a practical need only with practical solutions. They were looking at a human need only through the lens of, of human resources. Now, now, think about it for a moment. These guys had just returned, right? From practical ministry experience that Jesus had sent them out on. And Jesus had given them what? One basic command, right? His one command to these guys was to go out and to take nothing for the journey. And what was Jesus teaching them? I want you to rely on your heavenly father to provide your physical needs. Rely on a spiritual solution to a physical problem. Basically, look outside of the box of human wisdom. Why? Well, because we're not making a kingdom on earth that moth and rust can can Destroy, we're, we're storing up treasure in heaven. We're investing into a kingdom of heaven, a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. The church's job, contrary to a very popular opinion, is not to build a physical kingdom on earth. Nowhere in scripture are you gonna find that mandated to the church. Yes, maybe to the Jews, but not to the church. Jesus came talking about a spiritual kingdom. Our job is not to redeem a city. First, we can't redeem anything. That's Jesus' job. Secondly, the city's going to be destroyed. Our purpose is to invest into a spiritual. Jesus is teaching them that they are a part of something that transcends rational or at least human wisdom. Saying, guys, you're just looking at the You're just forming a a solution to a problem only using your own wisdom. You know, it grieves me. There was an interview. It was kind of a town hall dynamic where you had uh, two pastors, two very popular pastors. You had Andy Stanley and you had Greg Laurie. Now, I think most of us are probably familiar with Andy Stanley being here in the South, but Greg Laurie pastors a church called Harvest. It's part of the Calvary Chapel movement. It's a growing, vibrant, big church in Riverside, California. They do Harvest Crusades. It's a wonderful ministry. And the question posed to the panel was how, as a church, do you go about making decisions? And Greg was like, well, you know, we look at the X's and O's, you know, we, we look at the bank account, we see if we have enough money. I mean, I mean, we definitely are prudent in the sense of being responsible with the minds that God has given us and looking at the cost and, and the benefit and, and, and maybe some of the downsides. We look at it from a very rational perspective, but when it's all said and done, we take a step back and we pray. Because Lord, if, if this is where you're leading us, if this is where you're guiding us, we don't want the mistake of limiting your work through human wisdom because works of faith defy human wisdom in so many instances. So Greg was like, we, we lean on the Holy Spirit. Well, Andy Stanley, he said, that's great for Greg, but we're running a business and we don't pray about those kind of decisions. We solely look at them from an X's and O's, from a balance ledger on the end result. And if the ministry will be financially prudent to the business, then we'll do it. If it makes financial sense, we'll do it. It's corporate Christianity. It's a church. We we see a predominant church making decisions based upon human wisdom. And may I say that decisions made only on human wisdom 1st they're never a work of faith and will always be limited by humans. See, at Calvary 3.16, I, yes, we're going to imply and apply intelligence and, and, and some rational examination to decisions that we make. I mean, we're, we're going to be prudent. God's given us a mind to think. But when it's all said and done, do I want to be a part of a work of man? No, I want to be part of a work of faith, a work of God. And those kind of works require me to not just look at it from the lens of humanity, but to seek the Lord. Shall we place God in a box? And I think that's the problem here. I think this is the ultimate lesson that Jesus is trying to communicate to these disciples. I sent you out with nothing, telling you to take nothing, to solely rely on me to provide. And guess what, guys? You went out, and what happened? I proved faithful, right? And here we are. I give you another job, and you come back with only human wisdom. And Jesus is now going to do something. A miracle is going to be performed that is so memorable to these disciples that second to the resurrection of Jesus, it is the only other miracle that Jesus performs that is recorded by all four gospel writers. You might think walking on water is pretty awesome, and it is. Or causing blind people to see is pretty radical, and it is. But the one miracle that's always stuck in the minds of these men was what's about to happen. Because we're told. But Jesus said to them, how many loves do you have? (laughs) You can see the disciples kind of looking around. They don't really have an idea So Jesus says, go and see. And we're told that when they found, specifically in John's account, we're told that Andrew found a young boy who had five loaves and two fish. They said five and two fish. Now, here's my third observation. Works of faith utilize limited resources. Did they have much? No. Matter of fact, they basically had enough food that's a good lunch for a young boy. So here they are, and they're like, okay, God's going to do something here. He wants to work in a way that defies human reason, but he also wants to do something because we're a part of a spiritual kingdom and not necessarily a physical one that also utilizes limited resources, but utilizes them in such a way that the end result can never be attributed to those resources. You understand what I'm saying? Like the truth is about North Point. It is a vibrant, growing, huge ministry that has solely been devised by man. See, I want to see God do very similar kind of work here with Calvary 316. But I want him to use limited resources to defy human wisdom to transcend what we could devise on our own. So when we see something happen, we can't say it was the resources. We can't say it was our wisdom. We can't say it was our ingenuity. We can only say what? Wow, God did something radical. Well, we're told that he commanded them to have them sit down into groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, literally rows, in hundreds and in fifties. A lot of people, Jesus is saying, organize them. So they do. They go and they organize them 50 and 100s. There's aisles. It's going to make what is about to happen a little more functional, which leads me to a, a fourth observation. That works of faith do require preparedness. They use limited resources, but they require preparedness. Let me ask, if you really believe that God will bless if God gives you a vision, gives you a ministry, and you're going to take a step of faith, and you believe that God is going to honor that step of faith, are you prepared to receive his blessing? Have you made plans? Have you put together things in place for the increase? About two years ago, one of the first things I did when I became the campus pastor here at Calvary 316 was I built the nursing mother's room. You know how many babies we had at Calvary 316 when I built the nursing mother's room? A big squadoosh. We didn't have any babies. But you know what? I felt like the Lord wanted us in this area to reach young families and young mothers with babies. That that was the future of Calvary 316. And isn't it really the future of all churches? You want to judge a church, look at its nursery ministry. That'll give you a good idea where it's going. So we built a nursing mother's room. And I had people scratching their head saying, why are we spending the money? Why are we doing that when we don't have any babies? Well, because I believed that the Lord was going to work. And that if I really believed the Lord was going to work, we should have been prepared. Because heaven forbid, we have the Lord provide us babies and families with young children, but we're not prepared for it. You see, a work of faith requires preparedness. Now, in regards to our nursery ministry, like we're at this point, just two years later, trying to figure out what in the world we're going to do because we have like four or five babies in there and we've got three on the way. And it's like, it's unbelievable. Now, I've done my part. We added a baby. We contributed. Yes, there was a little uh, selfish motivation behind it. A happy wife is a happy life, right, men? But preparedness. If you are expecting God to do a work, are you prepared for it? We should be organized to manage what he gives. And when Jesus had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed and he broke the loaves. Literally, broke means to break, to tear into pieces, which are the loaves, unleavened, probably pita bread. He gave them to the disciples. The idea here, he he blessed, he broke, he gave them. He's breaking them, he's giving them. Literally, the tense here is that he keeps giving them. He keeps tearing, he keeps distributing. That it wasn't like Jesus looked up to heaven, prayed, and boom, enough bread for everyone was magically there. It's the idea that Jesus just kept tearing off from the limited resources, kept distributing, kept distributing, kept distributing. And with the fish, we're told that he divided them. Literally, he cut them into pieces. And as he was cutting them, he kept cutting them and he kept dividing them and it kept multiplying to the point that everyone there ate, were filled literally to be be gluttoned, to be satisfied. Kind of like the idea of like, you're gonna have to get a wheelbarrow and roll me out of this joint because I am just stuffed. And they had 12 baskets full of garments of fish. All this stuff is fragments. It's all left 5,000 people. It's the men that ate. We can estimate up to 20. And my fifth observation here is that works of faith necessitate God's intervention, which is obvious, right? This wasn't gonna happen apart from a supernatural work of God. Jesus in the mix was required for this to happen. Also, by the way, if we're to see anything happen here at our church, or if you're gonna see something happen in your life, a work of faith, guess who also should be in the mix? Jesus. It's prerequisite. Jesus has to be in the mix. The feeding of the 5,000 would have been an impossibility without the intervention of Jesus. The supernatural element is undeniable. But I want to make a point here. Supernatural elements, or the supernatural, must find a basis in the natural. By definition, it's supernatural. Understand that supernatural works are not and cannot, by definition, be anti-natural. Now, though we would define this event as a supernatural work of God. And though this event defied human wisdom, understand that we can't shy away from the logical question, how did this happen? Have you ever thought about it? Like, really? Like, you're wanting me to believe this happened? Like this? I mean, Zach, okay, you're telling me a work of faith has to Defy human wisdom, but what about reason? What about logic? What about natural stuff? This is kind of crazy. It's quite a big step for me to believe it. I ran across a web forum where people presented explanations because every pastor that I listened to teach through this section of scripture never actually presented anything rational. They just accepted the miracle and moved on. That's fine. I guess I think differently. This is some of the common responses. Let me read. Neo the Friendly. That's his web name. He, this was his explanation. He said, I heard a priest give the following explanation. He said it was a miracle, but went on to say that disciples only have a few loaves of bread and had only a couple fish for food. But Jesus told them to go around and share the little that they had. And the crowd that had gathered, they actually had brought their own food, for each of the families, but they didn't want to show it for fear of, of having to share what they brought. And so when they saw the disciples giving, you know, barely enough that they had for themselves, they were moved. And one by one, the people began to share their food. Everyone took the food out and they began to share it. And so people realized that there was enough for everyone. Really, there was plenty. There were leftovers that the, that the miracle the miracle wasn't that Jesus actually divided, it was the miracle that Jesus transformed greedy hearts. That was the miracle. Buzz 1954. He said simply, Jesus is God. That's all he said. Guess who's going to hell, question mark? He said this. Jesus managed to persuade everyone to pull their food and share, which was the standard in the early church, and People lived communally. The story took on mythical proportions as it was retold and is as it is today. Nymphidel said, I think it's fairly obvious that the story is an exaggerated tale of Jesus sharing his fish booty. As if 5,000 people would forget to pack a lunch. If people in the old days were that stupid, we wouldn't be here talking about it. One LMO says it was a miracle. There is no explanation of how it was done. As the Son of God, He can do what he, what he chooses to do. Looney said this, really small portions. That was his explanation. Now I could continue on, but really most of the, the explanations of how the miracle of the 5,000 took place fall in one of two categories. One It's either birthed into the abandonment of the literal interpretation of the passage, or it falls into the second category of idiotic Christians who fall back on the Jesus is God argument. It's like little kids in church. Well, what did you learn today? The Bible told me so. Like, no, you'd never allow that to pass. Like, no, like what was communicated? These are really the only two responses. Now I'm running out of time. I want to give you, a logical, rational explanation. It's just a theory of how this could possibly have happened. What do we know? How did, how did it take place? What does the passage tell us? If you view the story as a literal event, like I do, you believe that Jesus took five loaves and he began to break them into pieces. As he was breaking them into pieces, the bread regenerated on a cellular and molecular level, instantly reproducing more of itself. He was tearing it off. As he's tearing it off, it's regenerating. He keeps going. Same thing happened as Jesus is cutting the two pieces of fish. Now, understand, and this is why this is important. Though God can do what he wants, you should understand that in regards to the realm of logic and rationalism, God can't defy... Logic. Why? Because he himself is logic. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that in the beginning was God or the logos, literally the logic. God is logic, God is rational. Supernatural has to be based in natural, can't be anti natural. Supernatural works of God can be supernatural, can defy wisdom, but can't contradict rationalism and logic. So, Let me give you a rational explanation. Those supernatural, I believe that the miracle is rational for three reasons. First, every scientific persuasion will agree that at some point in the history of the universe, what happened? Matter spontaneously was produced from energy. Like we've seen, every scientist will believe that at some point in the universe, matter was produced from energy spontaneously, out of the blue, out of nowhere. If you believe in the Big Bang, that's literally what you, what you say, that it was energy that cooled, it combusted, boom, you had matter. Very elementary explanation. Or you have intelligent design, which believes that God spoke, boom, matter came into being. So first we can already, every scientist will agree that at some point we've actually seen in the past, matter come out of nothing. Whether it's energy, which is not matter, or just God speaking. Two, there is a concept of secular and molecular regeneration in the sense that that we know within certain species of animals that cells duplicate, right, on a cellular level, that one cell becomes two cells, right? Independent, it just happens, cellular regeneration, that cells regenerate themselves, We also know that things can grow back through molecular regeneration. If you take a Geico, you cut off its tail, give it time, what happens? The tail grows back. If you cut off a starfish limb, guess what happens? It grows back. We've seen in the physical world that through cellular and molecular regeneration, things can replicate itself based upon the genetic code that already existed which is interesting, right? If Jesus took the fish and started cutting the fish and had the bread, that defies logic and what we see in the physical world. But if Jesus took bread, tore bread, and bread continued to produce itself, though it's supernatural. You're not doing that. I'm not doing that. It doesn't defy logic because we see certain things. Cloning, an entirely different topic. But if the DNA is present, you can replicate it. Jesus is cutting fish. As he's cutting fish, molecular regeneration's happening and it's continuing to come back. Once again, I'm not trying to provide you a concrete explanation other than the fact that I want to provide you an explanation that sounds reasonable so you can say, I believe in the feeding of the 5,000 and not be who's going to hell guy and provide a dumb answer or Looney Tune that says it was a really small portion. Throw around a little science and sound smart. The sixth observation Works of faith warrant and reward human involvement. Jesus did the work, right? But who did he use? He used the disciples. They were part of it, they were the ones distributing it. They were prepared, and they went out and they were included in the task. And they received some of the reward. There were 12 baskets left over. What do you think Jesus is communicating? That they had a lack of faith? or that maybe they should expand their thought process of what a work of faith really looks like. We also see, it's my final observation, that faith in God is essential for a work of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Jews were commanded to pray at the conclusion of a meal. They were instructed that they were to thank God for the meal that they had just ate. These prayers were known as the Brikat HaMazon. I'm not a Jew, so I hope I got that right. Literally, it's the blessing of the food. It's what these prayers are called. These blessings, they're to pray for the blessing that God provided the food, that God provided the land for the food, that God provided Jerusalem, that God would provide a Messiah, that God would, uh, was always good and would continue to be good. It's the, the, the Berkat HaMazon, the prayer at the end of the meal. Jews prayed at the end of the meal. But we're told here, Mark tells us, that Jesus blessed the food before they ate. Now, once again, you might have just read that a thousand times and never understood the significance. But if you're a Jew in the crowd and you're seeing this happen, understand what's taking place here has never happened in Scripture. I looked and looked and looked and looked. Could not find one example of praying before the meal. Couldn't find it. Jesus is standing there. And he looks to heaven and he prays for the meal they're they're about to eat. What's happening is radical and it's completely revolutionary because it's the first time, first recorded time, anyone's ever prayed before the meal in scripture. And what is happening and why is this significant? Jesus was making a contrast between himself and Judaism. The Jews would eat at the end of the meal. Why? Why? Because it was to thank God for past faithfulness. Do you realize that a works-based religion always focuses itself on what God has done? It's always works-based, it's performance-based, not only for me, but also for God. I'm gonna thank you, God, that I ate this meal, that you provided it for me, that you've done all this great stuff in the past. But Jesus, before the work, He raises his hands and he prays and he thanks. You see, Jesus prayed before the meal. Why? To thank God for what God was about to do, not what he had done. It was a future faithfulness that Jesus was thanking God for. Because you see, a faith-based religion focuses on what God is going to do, not what God has done. Now, yes, what God has done should encourage us that God can do something great. But understand, faith in God is an essential work of God. And Jesus demonstrated this. He thanked God for what God was going to do, the blessing God was going to bring before it happened. You didn't think you were going to get an explanation for why in Christian circles we pray before the meal versus Judaism that prays afterwards. Our challenge, we're going to wrap it up here. Do we, both individually and collectively want to be a part of a work of faith? That's the question you should ask yourself this morning. Do you individually want to be a part of a work of faith at home, through some practical ministry, at work? You fill in the blank. Do you want to be a part of a work of faith here collectively as a church, as a family? If you do, if the answer is yes, don't forget, works of faith begin with improbable commands. Works of faith defy practical wisdom. Works of faith utilize limited resources. Works of faith require preparedness. They necessitate God, his intervention. They warrant and reward human involvement. But when it's all said and done, faith in God is essential for a work of God. So far.